Howdy folks, welcome to our podcast, American Cowboy in New Zealand. This is Ben Longwell with True West Horsemanship. We're glad you're here. Join us as we share stories and adventures and interview extraordinary men and women in the equine and ranching industries to gain insight into horsemanship and life itself. It is our mission to help people and their horses better understand one another and achieve together that which they cannot do individually. Thanks for riding along with us. Hey there, everybody. Sure glad you've been able to jump in and tune in to our episode here today. I'm excited to be catching up with Anna Blake. I first met Anna at Equidays here in New Zealand, the National Horse Expo, in I believe it was 2018. And uh, we had both had people tell us that we should meet each other, hadn't we? And uh, it was it was interesting to have heard about one another from various people and then to be able to run into each other at Equidays. And I think we visited a bit during the night show. And, and so, Anna, let's just get started and um, maybe just start with where you, you know, where you grew up and, and, and what, what horses, how horses played a part in, in your childhood and the development of, of kind of where you got to be at today. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, riding around the neighborhood in my Western saddle and showing off with my horse because I was a horse crazy girl and it seemed the reasonable thing to do. (laughs) And, uh, you know, once I left home, um, I, there were a few years where I didn't have horses and those might have been the years that impacted my horsemanship more strangely than uh, some of the years I was riding. And, uh, you know, got a horse again. And um, it was one of those, (laughs) it sounds odd to say this, but I had no intention of being a horse trainer. I was a fanatic amateur. I studied everything I wanted to study. I took as many lessons as I wanted I went to shows, I clinicked with the riders I was interested in clinicking with, and I was so involved in learning that frankly, I didn't imagine I would ever be interested <laughs> in anyone else's horses. Absolutely, I would say. <laughs> but it was a short-sighted opinion, really and I know you know why. It's it like gets exponential um, when you start getting around. You know, I got offered a job that I couldn't refuse. Like and you then said, it dawned on me that I could own everybody's of the horses. Horse and you're wanting to learn everything <laughs> and that you can. And eventually kind of I got lucky enough to be able to, trying you know, to just impart some of meet vast that numbers. And I know that you others, give you're still in the learning process as well as uh, and instruction. trying to and teach other people or, or you know, help the other thing horses, about giving you continue to learn and grow and develop yourself. Do, do that or at least and the opportunities did that get the multiplied. Um, As you know, you just have an opportunity horses and to learn from so many more horses, people, and I don't, I don't think we'll ever get to another the way. On that deal. It's and a pretty I mean, don't you feel like that perspective changes how you train exciting, some or, the way, the or way that works. some? Yeah, I, I agree so much. Um, for, for me, the first um, big international trip I took was to New Zealand and I landed there and um, 
went, uh, stayed for a couple of days with someone who read my blog for years, and I scurried out of her house and down to her barn, uh, where she had a mare who had a word or two to say to me. And I was so profoundly relieved that the horses in the Southern Hemisphere were speaking the same language that I knew because the whole moon thing was backwards. Yeah, yeah, the light, the sun, the shadows, those sorts of things, that'll, that'll mess up your direction, sense of direction a little bit down here. But the horses, yeah, they, they pretty much operate just the same. Yeah, it was a big comfort to me. Yeah, yeah, I bet it was. So now, growing up, you know, tell us a little bit more about how, you know, being a crazy horse girl and, and uh, where did you grow up? You know, how did you get into horses? Were your, were your folks into horses or, or what exactly? Maybe just fill in a little bit of that backstory for us. Uh, I was born about five miles from Canada uh, in, and uh, initially lived in Minnesota on a farm with people who had horses but didn't like them. Uh, my grandfather, I hear, was a famous horse trader in the area, but none of it was, pat it skipped a generation. Maybe it landed on me. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't have money. We lived like farmers live, not ranchers, but farmers. And so, um, you know, sometimes I rode the horse down to bring the cows in, but it never worked out for me. <laughs> you know, the horse wouldn't cross the river. You, you know, it was always, um, I, I think my, my dad gave up on me uh, and horsemanship early on. Uh, he always found me, you know, to be too uh, girly with horses. He felt like, well, I don't know if you heard all of the sentences that I heard, but uh, my horse didn't respect me. He took advantage of me. Um, I wasn't tough enough. I needed to show the horse who was boss. And, um, you know, did you hear that growing up? Did people? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I've heard all those statements a few times for sure. So I have a memory of when you and I met and it could seem like I'm teasing you and I probably am, but you and I met, although we didn't talk much at Equidays and we were sitting across a table from each other. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were in the, um, we were in the, oh, what do they call it? The place where the special people sit. <laughs> I don't know how we ended up in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have no idea how we got there. But um, something went on in the arena that was meant to be funny that I didn't think was funny. And it was kind of against a horse. And I think Natalie was next to you and you were straight across from me. And I looked over at you and you looked like this. And then I looked at Natalie and I looked back and I thought, a hat. I have a reason to want a hat. <laughs> <laughs> and I had been talking about calming signals during the day 
you know, uh, in demonstrations. And I thought, boy, a hat, that's the greatest calming signal in the world. It's like a horse looking away, only socially acceptable. Genius. <laughs> yeah, I remember that evening and getting to visit a little bit about various things as we watched different stuff going on in the arena. And, and it was it was good to get get be able to, you know, catch up and, and have a little visit there. But it was over too soon. I, I wanted to visit with you more. And that's one reason I'm so, why I'm so excited to be able to visit today. Yeah. Um, I always say this, you know, um, they, they didn't hire us to come there and talk to each other, sadly enough. And horse trainers are notoriously not like jazz musicians. We don't like go, go, go to an after club and, and uh, jam with each other about things. And so, yeah, I mean, I felt like uh, the, the opportunity to meet great um, lovers of the horse in, in the way I appreciate was profound at that group. And I, I didn't get to see other people as much as I wish I could have. And yeah, there's only so much time during those days to visit like that or, or try to network or get to know one another better uh, in a setting like that, unfortunately. So growing up, you, you were around the horses a little bit or, and, and your dad had some different ideas and different approach around horses. How did that sort of take shape as you grew up into your teenage years or, or early adulthood? Were you able to get your own horse at some point and start, is that when you started doing some competition type stuff? Or how exactly did that take shape? You know, uh, I was a member of a 4-H club. There were five of us and we only had enough tack for one horse all combined. And then we had to talk somebody into driving us. And uh, I, I love competition for all of the best reasons. And I was not able to do that until I was an adult. And much to, much to my whiny uh, teenage years, but I started my first horse uh, when I was 14. And, um, and you know... I'm I'm like uh, I'm I'm lucky to say that I was always able to somehow badger my parents into it, uh, save up my babysitting money for hay, um, and you know I don't I don't think I've changed much at all. Frankly, I think I'm still the same way. Um, when I after I left home, got my career my, my other career started, and then got a horse. Yeah, I was able to go to shows. I was able to, you know, I had a bank account and I had a horse. I mean, really, what more could you want? It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get better than that. There were no other names on my checking account but mine. I, I probably should have stated that. But but yeah, then I could start, you know, to progress. And, um, you know, uh, I kept, this is a no-brainer. I would flunk out of Western pleasure quickly, wouldn't I? <laughs> so would you. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. 
And so, you know, I'm like wandering through uh, what else I can do, what else I can do. And so I wind up raining uh, for a while. And, um, you know, I continued to look, I saw Western pleasure as kind of a beauty contest. And what I was looking for was like relationship events. And, uh, you know, now I'm going to say something that's going to, you know, aggravate people. Oh. But it's, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I was watching Raining Horses retire pretty young. Uh, I was seeing a lot of front end problems on them. Mm-hmm. And I heard about dressage. Uh, I was not born to dressage. I kind of did a butt fall into it. I was trying to help my horse. And um, I think if if there is any riding discipline more misunderstood than dressage, I don't know what it is. Yeah. And I would include the people who compete in it as not having a great understanding of it. <laughs> but, you know, people love to hate it. But the first it was the first place I learned about biomechanics. It was the first place that was really affirming to me about this little girl attitude that I had about not wanting to fight with my horse. And so, you know, the foundation of dressage says that your horse must be relaxed and forward and that you can't substitute one for the other. And, you know, to me, that's like mystical. <laughs> that is, you know, it's like, oh, I want that, whatever that is. Yeah. And um, so I got really hooked. And um, I had two horses uh, that were, well, one was an Appaloosa and one was an Arabian. I like to think of that as one of each of the breeds people love to hate the most. So, you know, I was scoring big on all fronts <laughs> and um, I rode them up the levels. And so I'm not saying that a $600 Appaloosa has a pee off that will get me in the Olympics, but that wasn't my goal. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to train. I wanted to take that journey. And I thought of it like a cross-country trek. I thought of it as, you know, the journey of a thousand miles. And I got hooked. How awesome is that? So an Appaloosa and an Arabian, you said, uh, you know, two breeds that you're not going to see at a high level of dressage, you know, in, in, you know, high levels of competition. But, you know, you weren't in it for just to get to the high levels for the sake of it, but you were doing this with and for these horses and, and for yourself and your journey in your horsemanship and to see, you know, them develop, help them develop their potential. How awesome is that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I think that there were people who certainly had opinions about me doing that. I bet so. My my Arabians pee off look like this. Ding, 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 ding. It was <laughs> it was marginally visible. But who has not ridden a pee off on their horse as they want to get back to the barn? I mean, this is not 
these are not movements that are unnatural in any way. Yeah. Cueing them is hard. <laughs> if you, you know, if you don't have that barn in view, it's harder to do it. But um, yeah, I just wanted to have that conversation and I wanted to go that deep in a relationship. Um, and, you, you know, in case you think I'm bragging about upper level movements, the thing about riding up the levels in dressage is every time you go up a level, everything you knew in the last level doesn't count anymore. There's a more evolved definition. And so it isn't that you go up the levels, it's that you go down plummeting to the foundation uh, more times than most people. And I think that that was the valuable thing. It's like, you know, when you get an advanced responsive horse, uh, regardless of the discipline you're in, um, you gain a respect for the fundamental work of, you know, walking and breathing and... Absolutely, absolutely. You know, all those technical things that we might work towards are, is only the basics done well. And, you know, a lot of times it seems like a beginner rider or even intermediate rider wants to work on something advanced, whereas a truly advanced rider spends a lot of times and a lot of focus on the basics. Yeah, I want to check each of the little bricks in the foundation and see if they are settled. And then I get a little more advanced and then I have to check those bricks again. And... Um, you know, at, at a point when some people might have thought the wise decision for me would have been, okay, Anna, get the real dressage horse now. I met somebody who ran a rescue and she said, would you be willing to work with our horses? And, and so I, I took this left turn and uh, instead of starting another horse, I started working I'm gonna say cleaning up messes that other people made because I don't always have a good attitude about the people involved in this, in this conversation. But, you know, the thing about working with really troubled horses is, um, you know, the way you train has to matter. Um, it's not about show, it's not about anything other than uh, can this horse release some of this anxiety? Um, you know, there are so many people in the competition world who do put their horses first. Sure. Yeah, but I think the ones we hear about aren't necessarily those people. And so, you know, um, here in the U.S., and I, I don't know if New Zealand does this, but there's this scam uh, called kill pens where, you know, uh, people who are, are still slaughtering all, sending all the horses to slaughter they want to, are preying upon people who have soft hearts to take in troubled horses. And, you know, some of the horses really are fine. They've just been hungry for a while and they're okay. But a lot of the horses are really in trouble and um, end up, you know, needing our help in really important ways. And so, yeah, I work with rescues and some of them are imported warm bloods and some of them walked down the road one day and got lost. Some of them, you know, were abandoned. 
And I think those are the horses that have had the biggest impact on me. I can totally see that. Yeah, it can be quite impacting to work with traumatized horses and yeah, coming from those different backgrounds and such, it could have a, a huge impact on your horsemanship and, and even on you as a person and helping these horses release some of that anxiety and learn to deal with their their backgrounds and, and come out the other side better for it. Yeah, it makes you makes you listen a whole lot better <laughs> because, you know, um, I, I think the thing my dad would tell me is horses are stupid animals and they have no emotions. Beasts of burden. And, um, you know, these days science tells us differently than that. Uh, and some of us always felt that way that, yeah. you know, uh, clearly horses had emotions and, you know, clearly a horse that was punished repeatedly behaved differently, you know, than others. But, uh, you know, to me, the most exciting thing going on in the horse world right now, and I, and I mean, I think we're really close to a huge paradigm shift in how we train horses. Um, because I think, you, you know, with the help of science, we're just understanding so much more, um, you know, than we used to. Yeah, it's quite exciting to see what I call a revolution in horsemanship, just continuing to grow and develop and, and spread in around the world, but also across different disciplines. It is, it is very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, you know, it's not perfect and it may not happen in my lifetime, but <laughs> I'm, I'm going to keep squawking about it because, you know, truly, I mean, I think sometimes people feel like, well, humans are extremists. So we think uh, we should sit in a pen with horses and call it a partnership. Or we think we have to beat them into submission because this job we have them to want them to do is really difficult. And this elusive middle place seems to be very hard to find. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you seek the middle place? I do. I do really try to. I think I understand what you mean. And it can be, it can be difficult. But I was just writing something this morning about horsemanship. How in horsemanship there's, there's a time to be gentle, but it, there's also a time to be firm. It's patience, it's consistency, yet flexibility. And so there's these concepts or principles that are always true, but not always applicable, depending on the situation. Yeah. And, I, you know, I mean, I don't want to go spiritual on us or anything, but that's an evolved concept for a human brain. And, um, you know, this is, I like to quote Tom Dorrance. He said two things. First, be consistent. And second, change things up. Thank you, Tom. That's so clear. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, today I was 
uh, on a Zoom meeting with a farrier and a horse and the horse's owner. And um, all of us are there with the benefit of technology. And, uh, you know, this is a horse that is very challenged. And what I want to say is, we weren't there for her, meaning she was there with some other farrier who had hogtied her in the past. And um, we're, we're working with her. She is making great changes, but you know, all the training technique in the world is not gonna help her. She's still in her memory and in her emotions. And we have to prove to her that we're not, we're not gonna do that. And I think that's where the challenge comes with techniques or training goals or anything else um, that we want to do with horses. Um, you know, they have a memory. Yeah. Uh, they remember their first trainer, <laughs> they, their first farrier. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think we do have to get deep into things that are nebulous. <laughs> I would, I would love to have, um, you know, a three-step process to the perfect horse, and I would only charge ten thousand dollars for it, and people, I'm sure, would line up to buy it. It's just it wouldn't be, it wouldn't work. Um, horses are individuals, and and I think that that's the challenge in the work that you and I both do, is that the same thing isn't always going to get the same answer. That's exactly right. And, and that whole idea has probably been one of my biggest soapboxes or, or longest running soapboxes. The horsemanship cannot be condensed to a formula or a step-by-step -step program or a curriculum. And obviously there's some great concepts and principles in those programs. The, the ideas are, are there, but until a student or a person can own those concepts here, you know, and in, in, inside of them really feel what needs to be done when and why and understand from the point of view of the horse so that they're not just going through a mechanical step-by-step -step process, but they're truly adjusting to fit the situation as, as Tom Dorrance said, then only then can they really be successful in the truest sense. And I just have always run into a lot of people who get stuck in one of these programs. I remember when I first started getting clinics going and, and getting some things going here in New Zealand, just uh, just seeing it time after time, so many folks getting stuck somewhere in that process because they, they had an, an idea of what to do sometimes in, in a situation and, and, and maybe they'd had some success with it, but they come a point when due to the circumstances or the situation or the horse or whatever was going on, it just didn't work and then they didn't know how to adjust to fit it. So they didn't have enough understanding of why and when and how. They kind of just had the what or the technique, the basic idea of the technique and, and then they'd get stuck or they'd get lost or frustrated or injured. And it's just there's so much more to it than that and until they own it for themselves. And that's probably one of the biggest questions that I get. People are always asking like, well, what do I do 
when, when my horse, you know, won't do this or wants to do that, what do you do? And I always feel like it's kind of the wrong question to ask. If we understand why we're doing these things and why the horse is doing what it's doing, if we understand when we are to address something, when we are to do something about it, if we understand uh, how then to communicate in the best possible way, then a lot of times the what or the technique, what we're actually to do, is informed by that understanding. Yeah, you know, I think for me, I work really hard to see it from their side, uh, from the horse's side, uh, because they don't have human logic. And, and, you know, some of it is just as, you know, as simple as, oh, I just want my horse to get in the trailer. Well, you know, now Ben's going to talk to you about why. <laughs> and, it, you know, um, I think I spend an inordinate amount of time standing around and breathing simply because those pieces have to fall uh, into place. Um, my friend Chrissy says that when she was learning to train horses, uh, Chrissy McDonald, when she was learning to train horses, um, every technique she learned worked on nine out of 10 horses. And I, you know, it's like, here's the problem. We keep getting the 10th horse and we have to, you know, find that message. And I, you know, I think a lot of times uh, with rescue horses, um, you know, sometimes uh, they go to rescue for behavioral problems. A lot of times that's not true. Um, it's hard times. There are no big villains, you know, people get sick or somebody dies. Um, sometimes it's a training issue where, you know, working for a month with you or with me could straighten that horse out. But rather than that, people pass the horse on and pass the horse on. And by the time a horse has gotten passed on two or three times, that's a real challenge for a horse. And, um, you, you know, part of me wants to say, for crying out loud, work with a trainer. And then I might answer that a minute later by saying, oh no, not that trainer. <laughs> Meaning, you know, a path of punishment from one trainer to another and horses lose their, um, you know, like their center of gravity. Um, they can't figure out what normal is anymore. Normal for a horse is. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that that's where we lose touch sometimes as trainers. We have to um, explain it to people. And then we have to, in, in their language, and then I want to have this conversation with the horse about what's normal for him. And, you know, for a horse that has a ton of anxiety about their feet, it takes a while to convince a horse that you're not going to do what they think you're going to do. I'm not that person. And, um, you know, uh, the combination of a, a horse that's been challenged and an owner 
who has a lot of passion to get it right and to help their horse. I, I mean, why would anybody do this for a living? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It can be so tough. And, you know, I've had some horses, as I know you have as well, where just being there, you're right there with them, standing next to them. You haven't asked for anything, and, and they're already anxious. They're already expecting trouble. They, like you say, they don't know what normal is. They don't, they're not okay just in that first, in, the, in, in that basic situation. And you can't halter them without it. You can't bring them into the round pen without it. You can't really ask them to do or try to communicate anything without this anxiety. And I too have spent an inordinate amount of time just breathing and just being there and just waiting for them to let down and, and turn loose of a bit of that and figure out that maybe it's not such a, a bad deal. And it can be painstakingly slow for some of them to make those changes in a lasting way where they can look up and see you coming and, and be glad to see you and not be anxious about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, people throw, there are words that people throw around and, uh, you know, there, there are words that I can't even use anymore, like respect, because the truth is, I think, we're the ones that are supposed to respect them. And that word has been stolen. Yeah. Um, I think we talk really cheaply about the concept of trust. I don't even think we understand it all that much. Half of us don't trust our families. Um, and, and yet, you know, we are attempting to do this magical thing between two separate species where something as sacred as trust is exchanged. And, you know, why would anybody think that was quick or easy or a three-step process? Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes I think we get complacent about this thing we are doing, which is actually really incredible. I, I totally agree with you. You know, I think there's definitely cases where it can be cheapened. And then on the other hand, I think there's, a lot of times where we don't really understand or a person doesn't understand what trust is from the perspective of the horse. Not just to do what they're being asked or be compliant or obedient or submissive or respectful, but that that communication can be received with a willingness and a true trust. What does that actually look like? What, what does it look like for the horse? And, and what are they giving up? truly like if they're offering that if they're willing and there's understanding what are they actually giving up like they're so generous aren't they it's it's amazing it's incredible to to imagine and yeah we we take it for granted yeah and you know in dressage we talk a lot about gates um and uh, I think you can imagine that there was a time in my life where talking about my 15 hand Arabians gates was not something I was wild to do. Um, but it's, you know, it's what you're saying 
Um, sometimes you see a horse cantering and, uh, you, you know, the dressage queen in me is going to say, well, his pole is tense and he's tight in the back and he's uh, trailing out or, you, you know, I can say all of those things. And that's not the point. The point is a horse can do it in a restricted, fearful way. But can I create a situation where my horse might have a couple of strides of brilliance, where he might move in the way he moves when he's in the pasture playing with his friends? Can I create a situation for my horse where I don't evoke an emotional response from him. Instead, I kind of act like Fred Astaire and let him do the dancing. Um, you know, I think that there is so much art in the science of training horses and vice versa. And, and you know, I would just really encourage my clients to try and find that level of freedom, which is, I think, where I start talking about moving cows, isn't it? <laughs> now you're talking. Well, it, it come to mind, you know, what Tom Dorrance used to say when you were talking there, you know, he used to say, set them up and let them find it. Kind of like you said. You know, let them do the dancing. So, moving cows. Yeah, do tell. Yeah. Well, you know, um, uh, at one of my clinics, uh, alarmingly enough, there was a man there. And, <laughs> and uh, we were going around the circle talking about, um, you know, our experience with horses. And I asked him to introduce himself. And he said, no, I just drove my wife. And I said, well, do you ride? And he said, yeah, but you, not like you do. And I said, well, what do you do? And he and his brother grew up on a ranch and moved cattle all day, did the job. Yeah. And, and, I, and he was, you know, not apologetic for it, or maybe he thought, some dressage queen was going to rip his head off about it. But I, you know, I said to him, um, did you ever micromanage that horse's face? And he laughed. He said, oh, God, no. <laughs> and I said, uh, did you let him pick his stride? Did you let him find his way across the ground? And they said, oh, God, yes. And, you know, I said, wow, you know, what a great freedom for a horse to have. Um, I think that there is that same freedom in dressage. I think there's that same freedom in any kind of training we do. But yeah, it's, you know, it's like if the horse does what I say, I suppose my ego, you know, I get to act important. And I don't know, maybe I'll get a hat. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying that to tease you. I'm going to tease you about hats until I get a hat of my own. Um, you know, what you're doing is showing off your skills. And um, I would rather the horse show off theirs. 
one of my favorite trainers that I, I worked with here, um, when we were learning um, Piaf, she was working with me and my horse and she said to my horse, let me see your Piaf. As if a 15 hand Arabian was something special to see. And I will tell you, he puffed his chest out and was so proud and you know, that's the deal. It's like, if we look at every horse for what they are not doing and not succeeding at and falling short on, uh, you will get just what you see. And, um, you know, to me, there is such a, a joy that comes from that moment, you know, where the horse gives you this tiny little try in the direction you hope he'll go. Tiny, almost invisible, because he's, he does not have the confidence to take a big stride. And so, you know, you, you give him a little exhale and the next step is a normal size step. And the step after that is huge. And, you know, to me, that should be the thing we're throwing the party about. Um, because the only thing of value we have to give a horse is confidence. They know everything else. They know how to canter. How foolish. They know how to do flying changes. That's a no-brainer for them. Yeah. Um, but can they have the confidence um, to be joyous in their work, whatever their work is? That brings to mind, I caught the end of your demo when you're down here at Equidays. And I think you said, learn to say yes more to your horse. And you're doing your demonstration where he's taking you for a walk. And I'd never seen anything quite like that before. And it's certainly given me, you know, things to think about since then. So how do you, where, like, so where did you go from that point in your life, you know, you had been working with your own horses, bringing them into the higher levels of dressage. And you took that hard left turn and started working with the rescue horses. Now you're working with the down and out and the traumatically uh, abused maybe, or, or these horses that have gotten the short end of the stick. And you've taken your aim and your passion with horses from two very specific individuals with that specific aim, that gymnastic development, correct bio, biomechanical movement, uh, higher level uh, dressage, and with those two specific horses. And now you're in some ways at the in opposite end of the spectrum or have switched ballparks entirely, working with quite a wide range of different individuals from all different sorts of backgrounds. And some of them, you know, dealing with some terrible anxiety or traumatic experiences. And you said that this was a pivotal point in your horsemanship and in your education and your journey. Calming signals, is this where you started sort of delving into what it looked like when those horses were processing anxiety, what they were actually communicating? How did this start to take shape and, and what was it like for you in making this transition? Um, yeah. You, you know, uh, I had these great horses that everybody loved. And then I got, I moved with my horses and got isolated. And 
I found out that maybe I didn't know as much about my horses who I had both started as I thought I did. Um, and, you know, and then I want to say, I feel like there's a little bit of a rescue in every one of us. And uh, that personal choice for me was something that healed me, parts in me that I wanted. I, you know, those were the horses. It ends up, I didn't want a fancy horse, ends up. <laughs> um, I think this, you know, uh, the leading from behind exercise for me came because when I was 14 and starting my first horse, there was just one book in the library about training horses and it said ground drive them. And I just have always moved horses that way in my barn. It's just how I do it. You know, I just walk back there and I needed, um, for this day of calming signals in the clinic, I thought, well, you know, I need to have this other exercise just in case we get done early. You know, we plan for contingencies. And I have no idea what's so great about leading from behind, but it means something to horses that I don't have my head all the way around. But I keep getting testimonials. Um, and uh, I see it have just profound changes in horses. Um, I think that we focus too much on horses' faces. Uh, for me, I don't touch their face and I don't get within three feet of their head. And, uh, you, you know, it's like their uh, blood pressure drops. Um, I hate this about horses. It would be fine with me to mangle their heads all day long. It's just, they don't like it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, this notion of, here's the, I think this is part of the challenge. Horses have had lead ropes jerked on them if they take one step of their own volition. And then some training practices just back them up and back them up and back them up. And, and, you know, they lose confidence for even walking forward. And so that first step, when you're leading a horse from behind, that first step is a huge act of courage for them because they have been told to not do this. And so, yeah, I think they're smart enough to be able to know when they're being cued. I think, uh, you know, this idea that we would encourage curiosity, you know, you can talk for 20 minutes about brain function, but the bottom line with brain function is our goal should be to encourage our horses to have curiosity. That's what builds um, positive brain activity. And so, yeah, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I let my horse take me for a walk? Um, and then I think it's even harder for people. <laughs> even harder <laughs> to get their head around. You know, all he wants to do is graze. Well, that's how you can tell he's taking you for a walk. He's not gonna wanna go to the library. I mean, of course he's gonna graze. And <laughs> 
and and you know what do we it's kind of like it it's not a competition they're taking us for a walk and um you know to me it's an activity a little more than you know standing around um but i i think it's i think it's fun and for them and i don't think we say yes enough period um when my first book came out uh it was suggested to me that i needed a business plan um i'm sure people have talked to you about business plans and you have embraced the notion as much as i did so my new business plan i decided it was working so well with horses that i would just say yes if my horse is never wrong and i believe that that's true then i'm just going to say yes i'm, I'm just going to take no out of my vocabulary and i think it's debilitating for some of us it's like if we can't if we can't correct a horse what are we supposed to say yes <laughs> just yes yeah. it works um Sometimes I give an assignment in one of my courses, uh, you know, in the training, affirmative training course, the assignment for the first week is to go into the pen with your horse and you have one word that you can say. And here's what I love about it. The horses respond in really interesting ways and the people get it. <laughs> It's like, it's actually an exercise that works for both the horse and, and people, which isn't all that easy to find. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That is so cool. That's so interesting. Now, you mentioned your book, and I know you've written several books. How did that start to transpire? Were you always a writer? Did you always enjoy writing, or is that something you had to work at? I, uh, I really enjoy some of your writing, and, and you're quite a wordsmith. Is that uh, kind of a natural gift there, or, or have you had to kind of work at that and refine that in, in more recent years? Um, thank you. You and I both read enough dull articles on horses where we have to push past that first paragraph. Uh, <laughs> you know, that it's like uh, you, you got to work at writing. It, I don't think it comes naturally for anybody. Uh, so here in Colorado, it's Thursday night, and that's blog night. Every Thursday night for the last 12 years, I've written a blog. And I started writing my blog because of I wanted I had a book I wanted to write, and I didn't think I was a good enough writer. You could say <laughs> my words were green broke, and I decided I was gonna uh, ride it up to Grand Prix. And if I got bucked off, I was gonna climb right back on because that's the way it felt. It was harder for me than horses. Yeah. Um, and when I had been writing the blog for five years, I thought I was ready to start on, my, on the book I wanted to write. And, um, and yeah, I haven't stopped. I think I'm like, <laughs> I'm like all of us. Uh, I have a huge debt that I owe horses uh, for what they've meant to me in my life, uh, what they've meant to me personally. And um, I just, uh, it's my swan song. 
you know, I'm, I'm not going to die this week, but there's a really good chance I'm not going to make it to the Olympics. And in light of that, uh, you know, I'm going to do everything that I can do uh, for the things that I've gained from horses. And, you know, I think that that's why uh, I want to say that I might be flattering myself, but I think that that's the way horse trainers should be. I think we should lead with our love for horses. Um, it comes as a shock to me to find out not all of us love horses, uh, but we should be proud of that. And we should brag about loving horses. And I'm not saying that I thought the day would come that I would write poems about calming signals that horses give me. Uh, but yes, now I even write poetry, which is kind of um, a, ch a bigger challenge for me. And uh, my recent book got a, a book award for in a non-horse category. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw that. That's pretty cool. Well, yeah, and and you know, I I mean, I would like uh, I would like the world to have a better understanding of horses, and I think um, I think we get too romantic about them. And it is my goal, especially when I'm writing about horses or writing in their voice. I work so hard to get it right. I might say what I think the horse is saying, but I don't do it to be clever or heartfelt or beautiful. I do it because I think we need to know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's something about the way people apply human thinking or reasoning or logic to what their horse is doing or, or, you know, what it's not doing and, and what their motivations are. I guess it's just a human trait. It seems like all of us do it. I agree. I, I you know, I come at, I come at this differently. Um, I never think that my horses love to deal with my emotions. I never think that they have emotions of their own. And, uh, you know, I think it's um, pretty obvious that we shouldn't work horses when we're angry or when we're frustrated, we should take those big emotions and go. Um, I, you know, the people I work with, for all the best reasons, their big emotion might be love. And it's really big. Sometimes it's, it's a little needy. <laughs> and, and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put that on a horse. I don't think horses fixed us. I think we fix ourselves for horses. And, um, and that's what it looks like to go through a long-term process with a horse, whether it's a thousand mile trek or training up the dressage levels or any riding discipline you're in, um, it is a journey and it's not over until it's over. And we race to some pinnacle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Would you say there's a horse that stands out in your memory, one that you'll never forget? 
you know, you sent me this question. Um, and I started thinking, and um, I'm uh, nearly, I'm so visual, I'm nearly dysfunctional about it. Not only do I see things, but I remember in visual ways. Uh, I thought about a clinic that I had in New Zealand that had three mares and two geldings that I will never forget, which was practically the whole clinic. <laughs> um, I, you know, I remember all of them. I think, um, you know, people, maybe people think that when a, a trainer only sees their horse for an hour and then never sees them again, um, that it just falls into a mental trash heap. Um, I wish I just remembered one. I remember thousands and I remember tiny details. And, um, you know, there are certainly horses that save my life about every two years through my whole life. You know, there are horses, I wrote about my grandfather horse quite a bit. And, um, you know, he was profoundly meaningful to me, but he stands there right over my shoulder with every clinic I give and, you know, nips my backside if I leave something out or act like I'm a little too important about something. And so uh, I, it's not really remembering them. Uh, I think that there's an old uh, country and Western song that goes something like, how can I miss you when you won't go away? I think that's how, <laughs> that's how I feel. They're all right here. Um, I think I have been the luckiest woman in the world to have, uh, you know, had this experience, um, not just with my personal horses. It's such a, you know, it sounds dorky to say it, but it's just true. Don't you feel privileged when people bring horses to you to work with you yeah that is sacred that is i have um a horse out in my barn that boards here and uh he's 17 this year and his owner and he and i have worked together since he was four years old and it, you know it's a long-term relationship i'm thrilled and um I think about horses I met once and I feel the same way. I just, I think we're lucky. Yes, yes, I agree. Very privileged, very blessed. And like we were saying at the start, you know, it's opportunity for our learning and our education experience, but there's more to it than that. You're, you're right. So what about in, in all those memories of those horses and that, those experiences you've had, is there one that stands out as having helped you, you know, grasp something new or, or revolutionary in the way that you were doing things? Is there one that stands out in your memory in that way? So, you know, it's the donkeys that fall into that category for me. <laughs> you know, there is this one particular donkey. I, I was hired to work with three draft horses and three rescue draft horses and two rescue donkeys. They were moving to another state. They were gonna go on an 18 wheeler. There was gonna be a ramp. We didn't have the trailer parked in the pasture. 
And so I worked with them for a few months. And uh, this donkey, his name was Wyatt. And he was a rope donkey. And uh, so every inch of his body was covered with scars and one of his ears was broken over. And I, you know, I didn't even want to work with him. Meaning I didn't want him to even begin to think good things about people because we didn't deserve to ask him to do anything. <clears throat> and, um, you know, the day came and there are a bunch of people and they're the guys who are driving the truck and, you know, they're on a schedule. They're not happy to see me there. I don't know why people aren't happy to see women horse trainers show up, but sometimes you really get that sense, just saying. And so, uh, you know, I start with this big percher on gelding and he walks right on. And then I take these two other uh, draft horses on and it was a toss up, but I, it took about 15 minutes to get the, the other donkey on and then it's just Wyatt. And the ramps are narrow, so I either had to face him or look away. And looking away is smart in some instances, most. And in his case, and, you know, it probably took me 25 minutes for his first hoof to hit the ramp. He did this thing that donkeys do. And, and I think you work with donkeys and mules, don't you? I have worked with a few mules, but no, I actually haven't worked with donkeys. No. Yeah, I've, I, they're like prehistoric mules. <laughs> um, and, you know, it is just every ounce of courage he has to put that one hoof on. And he looks at me and holds my gaze. And then he exhales. And it is as if he says, okay, if you say so. And... I mean, his legs are quivering and he walks up this ramp. And I think I learned something about trust that day that is hard for us to articulate. He should not trust me. He just shouldn't. Yeah. Look what look what humans have done to him. He should not trust me. Um, I got to see him... Uh, maybe about four or five years after that. And I was walking down the aisle of the barn and he was elderly and he uh, had foundered and he was, in, he was in pretty bad shape. And he heard my voice uh, coming down the aisle and tried to stand up. And by the time I got to the door, I could see him struggling and I turned around and left <laughs> because I don't want him to stand up. I don't know many people who I think have hearts as big as his. Mm, yeah. And, um, and you know, that's why I think this work that we get to do is so special. It's why I think working with rescue animals for me is so meaningful. Um, I can, I can train Tempe changes and I have a wild canter half pass. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I kind of like working, I, I kind of like working with more, um, you know, with bigger hearts and maybe more scars. I don't know. Yeah. 
I don't know. You know, it's really meaningful. Yeah. It's life and death. Yeah, it's life and death for them. Um, I think all horses think it's life and death all the time. That's what it means to be a flight animal. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, f for them, yeah, they're the ones that steal my heart. You know, if we misunderstand uh, horses, then we certainly misunderstand mules. Um, and I have had a long string of donkeys come through my place. And I always feel like, uh, you know, you better get it right. They yeah. have like a zero tolerance policy for arrogance or bossiness or being hurried. Yes, yes. I think that's where the mule gets it from. And, and like what you said about Wyatt the donkey and, you know, that act of courage, putting that foot up on the ramp you know, just because you said so, you know, they don't, they don't do that. Horses, horses will do that. They'll, they'll be compliant, even though they don't understand or don't necessarily even trust you. And they'll do things that they don't even think about. But a donkey or a mule, you know, they, they tend, especially donkeys, you know, they just don't give it away like that. That is, you know, pretty hugely significant. Yeah. They say, um, you know, that horses fill in for us, but mules and donkeys don't. I think mules and donkeys see that as a character flaw in horses. I think that's why, that's yeah. why they kind of see horses as second-class citizens a little bit. I would totally agree with that. And, and to quote Tom yet again, he used to say, you have to treat a mule or a donkey like you ought to treat a horse. Yep. I think it can be for some horses, uh, it can be easy to intimidate a horse into work. And um, it's kind of taking the easy road in some respects. Not that it's easy to be harsh with a horse, but uh, you, you know, compared, <laughs> compared to us standing there talking with people <laughs> about how they how the horse feels and what the plan is and what logically could happen um you know i love working i love mules they're great yes yes i know exactly what you mean intimidation you know horses will you know respond to that it's not true response but uh that's sort sort of the shortcut route for us uh, as as horsemen and and to get things thinking and to understand where they're coming from and understand their motives and and adjust our approach to fit the horse that's that's not always the easy route yes mules will sure make you think differently yeah and um one of the first mules i worked with was a mini mule right and boy if uh if I were to have an opinion about mistakes in crossbreeding, that might be at the top of my list. I've met, I've met a few now and, and they're complicated, but the thing that was so great about working with that mule is that she was really terrified and aggressive. And if she had been 15 hands tall, she would have been euthanized. And so I got to work with all of the emotion and not quite enough size to kill me, although she 
tried to kick my knee a few times and that would have been bad. But, you know, um, what has to happen for a peaceful herd animal to become aggressive? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Things that, that are unnatural had to, to happen. Know. Yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, that doesn't just happen, you know, for no reason. Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes with pain, but, but yeah, if it's a training issue, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I wish we had how many horses that you work with, with training issues, uh, do you believe are in pain? Oh, definitely quite a number. Yeah, quite a number. And that's something that I always look for, you know, right off the bat from the very beginning is any signs of pain or discomfort or things that don't seem to be improving or getting better, you know, like lameness is, is obvious most of the time, but, but things that you can't necessarily see, but behavioral issues that uh, are not getting better with better understanding and better uh, responsiveness and such and, and, you know, would mark something that's physically not right. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think that's one of the biggest benefits of understanding calming signals. So much of the time, the thing they are, you know, we're saying do this task and they're saying I hurt. And this is a conversation that has no place to go because it doesn't, intersect um so often it's about pain yeah now just for everybody listening calming signals what are we talking about here what does it look like what are give us a scenario um so a calming signal is a message that a horse or animal or person with their hat across the table a calming signal is a message that the horse gives us that they are no threat that we don't have to be aggressive. They're telling us to calm down, not vice versa. And so um, I walk up to a horse uh, and uh, want to halter him. And he turns his head away or looks down at his dinner plate. I'm just saying, <laughs> he turns his head away. He's not saying no. He's saying, can I have a minute? He's not saying, I don't want to work with you forever. He's just saying, can I have a breath? And by the way, if a horse looks away, uh, he can only look so far and then his head is going to come back. We really don't have to pull it. He's just looking for a breath. Um, it's a calming signal to look away. It's a calming signal for a horse to eat when he's not hungry. Uh, something I notice a lot of people do also. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you walk a horse to the back of the trailer on pavement and he stretches down and looks like he wants to graze or he pretends to graze on dirt or he sniffs the ground in front of an obstacle. He's not distracted. He cannot be distracted. Um, He's just saying, uh, I'm going to stretch my neck and think about this. The cool thing about a calming signal is that it's kind of a dimensional expression. 
meaning it's a statement, I'm stressed out. It's a statement, I'm self-soothing by looking away or stretching my neck or chewing. Um, and then number three, if it wouldn't kill you, could you like loosen your jaw a little bit? Could you uh, stretch your neck a little bit? Would you consider taking a breath? And so, you know, to me, uh, my focus is, can I get in the conversation? And so if I am working with Wyatt and he doesn't want me to touch him, he doesn't want me to come near him, he doesn't want to know me. Uh, and he's right. Um, I'm going to wait and uh, maybe he'll halfway lower his eye. So that's him pulling inside a little bit. I'm going to exhale and I'm going to say, good. Yes. Now I'm in the conversation. Now I can negotiate everything that comes after that. And, um, you know, it isn't even... It isn't even necessarily about understanding every calming signal and, you know, what kind of calming signal it is. Um, calming signals are things we have, behaviors that we've seen horses do forever. We just have never thought they had any importance. Yeah, absolutely. I can think of one situation in particular, you know, and I've been there many times, you know, where you're asking a horse to try crossing a little ditch or, or a creek or even, you know, coming up to a bridge or something. And I've seen people hundred times, you know, they put their head down and, and of course you're letting them have a look and check it out and encouraging them to think about moving forward or getting across this thing. And, 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 and you'd let them do that. But then they, while their head's down there, they grab a bite of grass and, and, oh man, that's a big infraction because now they're eating when they're supposed to be you know, thinking about crossing this thing. And obviously they can't be that scared or bothered by it if they're, you know, eating and, and, and have time to graze while their head's down there. And in reality, what you're saying is it's a, it's actually a, like a self self soothing in that moment. Yeah. I, I think grazing is the hardest one for us. You know, it's like we so have been told about spoiling horses in instances like that. Um, you know, the truth about calming signals is a horse, you know, what does a normal horse look like? A horse is, doesn't have anxiety. Well, that looks like a horse grazing. <laughs> and, um, and so, you, you know, of course that's how he's gonna tell us to calm down. Um, one of the big calming signals that I used to, uh, I used to not understand, um, you know, sometimes a horse will drop its head and rub its nose on its foreleg, on its knee, on its fetlock, something like that. And boy, I was taught, you bump that horse up, you pull that horse's head up. Well, <laughs> no, that's, you know. Why would I punish their face? That's not going to help anything. And, um, uh, it, you know, I remember a horse in a lesson. I was telling the rider to prepare to go for, to the trot from the walk. And the horse came to a dead stop. 
and both of us were alarmed and he threw his head down and rubbed his nose and we know that that's a calming signal so we just let it be and he lifts his nose and his first stride is in the trot and and it's like wait i have to rub my nose okay i'm ready now um you know it's like we think if one little thing doesn't look right that there's going to be a huge train wreck yeah that if a horse needs an extra second to do it. Um, and, you know, I think this about mules, and it's certainly true of draft horses of different kinds. You know, there are a lot of breeds of horses who really want to think. And why wouldn't we let them? Absolutely. You know, the best stories about mules are the ones where you know, they go any place, they do anything, they're out on the trail and they walk out and, you know, a great mule is a thing of beauty. But they get that way because they had time to think about it sometime in the past. Um, in the same way we see the past tense of bad training too often, we see the past tense of good training and don't always appreciate um you know, what it takes to, to have a happy, responsive mule or horse. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think a lot of times it's easy to take that for granted or, or to not recognize what it might have taken to reach a certain point or for a person and a rider to have achieved something. I remember a situation with the wild horse challenge that I was part of down here with the, uh, the wild stallions, the Kaimanawas, uh, a number of years ago. And he, he's easily one of the toughest horses I've ever worked with. And he taught me a great deal. But, you know, whenever the public saw him, he, he was calm, cool, collected, just little sweetheart of a deal, you know, and everybody loved him. And they didn't see the blood, sweat, and tears, the hours and hours and hours that I spent with him and the things that we did and, and went through. And every once in a while, I'd have somebody comment about him, you know, and, and he has this presence about him. Like in the Maori language here, they call it mana. And he has, he has this presence. And so this, you'd have a person, you know, they'd, they'd comment about him and then, then they'd turn to me and, and say, you've spent a lot of time with this horse haven't you? You've, you've done a lot with this horse. And, you know, it, it wasn't about me or what I've done or, you know, my ego or anything, but, you know, just that, that person recognizing the current state of affairs is the product of a purposeful process. And yeah, sometimes it's just easy to just think, oh, well, that horse is just forward or that horse has got a good mind or yeah, he's real athletic, which may all be true, but it doesn't negate the fact that, that, that the time and the effort and the quality of what goes into what you're seeing in that moment. Yeah, it's, it's like there are two categories of horses. There are problem horses or horses who never had a problem. And I think, yeah, it is funny. And, you know, I think part of my job as a trainer uh, especially when I'm working with people longer than a weekend, part of my part of my job is to remind them where they were a year ago, 
because I think we, you know, we lose that perception. Um, you know, he gets to look like a genius horse and he is, but you know, it's, it is whenever I see a really great ride, I always know that it did not take place in that moment that it had a real long windup. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's what we should be in horses for is the, the long term. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So one final question, and I think you've probably pretty well answered it, but what would you like to be remembered for or what legacy are you building? So, you know, when you ask people about their legacy and I refer to myself as a gray mare and I do this for a reason. Half of the people in the world don't like mares and I think that that sets them up uh, to have their feelings about me. <laughs> and half of the world really likes mares and they'll be my kind of people. Um, asking a gray mare about her legacy, um, you know, I think I am my horse's legacy. I think that, uh, you know, when I wrote my memoir, the silly reason was I wanted him to get credit for me, not the other way around. Mm. I wanted, I wanted uh, the people in my life who hadn't been supportive to not be mentioned. And, <laughs> and I wanted, I, I am his legacy. And I think for all of us, we're stuck in this, you know, one more continuum where half of our heart is with the horses who have gone before that we wish we could have done better for. And then at the same time, we're always looking ahead for the horses ahead of us, whether they're going to be our personal horses or horses that we get the privilege of working with. And, you know, I just want to find my place between those two places. Um, you know, or I could give you a simple one word answer, which wouldn't be like me, but let me give it a rip. Here's my legacy. Yes. <laughs> yes. There you go. Absolutely. That sums it up. I think you did sum it up well there, you know, and, and just making a difference for the horses that you're around, you're seeing, you're having an influence on every day or, or you know, in, in the moment. You can affect them right now and, and help them work through anxiety or, you know, learn to trust or learn to deal with what they're, what, you know, what they've experienced and just recognizing where that horse is at, you know, that's a legacy that's been being developed continuously in the present tense. And it may be too late for those ones that we've, you know, been around or tried our best with in the past, but it's too late now with those. And, and it, and yet, daily you're developing that which will help the next horse even better and better so it's a future a future legacy exactly and i i wish we had more time to visit and it's been great to catch up with you more and and hear more of your story 
Could you give us a little rundown of where people can find out more about you and maybe follow along with what you do, your website, your social media handles, uh, and also about your books, where people can track those down? Uh, my website is annablake.com. <laughs> really easy. Yeah, it's an easy one. Yeah. Um, you know, this year that I wasn't able to travel, I started uh, trying to make friends with technology, which is like this whole other level of horsemanship. And so I've been teaching online classes and I'm shocked at how well they work. But I shouldn't be because look at how well this conversation went. Um, so I teach at a website called relaxed and forward spelled out dot m n dot c o um, my blog is on my website my books are available uh at amazon but i think you guys down there want to get them from the book depository i think they're a better source um yeah awesome uh, i'm all over google <laughs> it's it's that thing i write every week so google knows exactly who i am that's good. That's good. And you're on Facebook and Instagram. People can find you there. Facebook. Yeah, I use Instagram to post uh, things I don't post, uh, things that I would share with my friends. Yeah. Meaning, you know, today I posted my llama and I in a downpour of sleet and hail and thunder. Um, but yeah, I'm on Instagram and I think it's Anna Blake 9 and I'm on Twitter, uh, uh, not that I'm aware that I am. I just, hit, I just hit the share button, that's all I do. I just say yes and hit the share button. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, I find Facebook to be a wonderful place. I know, I know I'm not supposed to. People are really nice. They say kind things to each other. They support each other. Um, it's great. I think like with many things, it's sort of is what you make it. And when you develop a culture like that and surround yourself with those types of people, yeah, it can be an incredible thing. Yeah. I think, uh, through the last, the pandemic this last year, you know, in my courses, there were people from New Zealand and Australia and England and all across U us and a few other places. And, um, you know, I guess it didn't occur to me, but people made friends with each other and they talked to each other outside of the courses and, you know, sent messages to each other. And um, there's no reason to feel isolated. There, there are lots of groups and I'm sure your followers do the same thing. Um, you don't, you don't have to beat up horses and you don't have to beat up each other. You could just, I think get along is a phrase that I read in your literature. And um, I love this phrase because that's what the cowboys used to say. It was a horse I could get along with. Well, it is us that's supposed to get along. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you. Absolutely. You bet. Well, thank you again, Anna. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us. And I know you're very busy, so I really do appreciate your time. 
and perhaps someday we'll see you again, maybe either in Colorado or down here in New Zealand. I hope so. That would be great. Thanks so much, Ben. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Well, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to American Cowboy in New Zealand. If you like this episode, please share and leave your five-star rating or review. Remember, you can find us on social media or our website, truewesthorsemanship.com.